So this bill introduces a bunch of powers available to what's called interception agencies, but that really includes any kind of law enforcement agency you can think of, everything from state police forces right up to ASIO and other spy agencies. It allows them to ask companies uh, to create tools to circumvent encryption. So that can take lots of different forms. It can be uh, keeping them, uh, the, the agency updated on improvements to technology or software updates. It can also be building um, technology for making sure that they can access and decrypted versions of communication. So it's a very long shopping list of things that an agency can ask a company to do. And it applies to uh, what's called designated communications providers which in fact is so broad that it really covers almost anyone who's running a website in Australia. Uh, so it's extremely broad in scope, uh, extremely broad in application, and it has all sorts of terrible, alarming implications for our digital security. According to the official information page about the bill on the Home Affairs Ministry website, encryption impacts at least nine out of every ten of ASIO's priority cases. Over 90% of data being lawfully intercepted by the Australian Federal Police now uses some form of encryption, and effectively all communications among terrorists and organised crime groups are expected to be encrypted by 2020. Is it then reasonable for people, at least superficially, to perhaps support this legislation on the grounds that terrorist groups, child abuse networks and organised crime and so on ought not to be able to conceal their activities using encryption? So it's an interesting question. That's certainly what government says, that it's necessary for law enforcement purposes. But when you think about encryption, what it does is not just protect communications on WhatsApp or messaging services. It's not like just being on the telephone. It's actually much broader. So encryption is used to protect all sorts of digital systems uh, that we use in our daily lives. That might be banking, when you go shopping online, if you have a medical device that has a Wi-Fi capability or you take mass, mass transit and it relies on a networked communication system, all these systems require encryption as a protection against hacking by nefarious actors. So when we allow the government the power to circumvent that encryption, even if it's for a legitimate purpose, then that can be repurposed, that tool, for nefarious purposes as well, and it undermines our digital security. So while they might say they're trying to keep us safe, I don't think they've thought this through. They're rushing this bill through very quickly because I think the risk is that it can create a whole bunch of weaknesses in digital infrastructure that we rely on on a daily basis. One of the concerns of the Alliance for a Safe and Secure Internet is the lack of judicial oversight that's built into the bill. Tell us a little bit more about that in terms of the, I suppose, checks and balances that if this legislation was to go through, uh, hypothetically, there should at least be some judicial oversight. Yeah, it's an interesting point, actually, because the equivalent legislation in the United Kingdom that's largely the model for some of the provisions that are most troubling in the Australian bill, it actually includes provision for judicial scrutiny. So a judicial commissioner takes a look at these proposals, these requests and notices from interception agencies. But here there's no such requirement. So essentially a police officer, the top cop in the Northern Territory could ask a technology company to help them out in decrypting communications and if the technology company agrees then that might happen and it might create a tool that's then used by somebody else. You know, that tool could get lost or stolen uh, and repurposed for a whole bunch of other nefarious purposes. They're very valuable tools. So you can see how incredibly broad it is without scrutiny by a judicial officer to make sure that the power is being used appropriately. And then there's a bunch of other things that I think are also really troubling about the bill. There's not much reporting on what kinds of activities have been asked and, and conducted under the powers. 
Uh, there's also safeguards in place, but, which the government likes to talk about a lot, but I don't think they're at all properly defined. So there is some protections, but the, uh, the that requires the state, um, the interception agency to not create a systemic weakness is what they call it. But they don't define what a systemic weakness is. So, of course, they can say that, but whether it's actually the case is quite a different thing. And then there's not really any public interest protection or consideration of the public interest in the decision-making or in uh, the protection of people who might wish to disclose wrong doing under this act. In fact, if you disclose much about anything under this act, you can face a really high penalty in the millions of dollars. And that's really obviously troubling in the event that someone wishes to disclose that uh, actually these these powers are being used improperly or they want to consult with somebody about whether it is a, a good idea, they will, they'll be prevented from doing so. This is a complicated subject, not perhaps in terms of the civil liberties questions involved, but certainly in terms of the nature of the technology we're talking about. One aspect of the technology that many people perhaps struggle to get to grips with is something you've mentioned, is the notion of so-called backdoors or technical weaknesses in encryption technology that can be circumvented by police and intelligence agencies to gain access to data that the user has a reasonable belief is secure. Tell us a little bit more about that. I suppose from a layman's perspective, when ordinary people use WhatsApp or any kind of end-to-end encrypted messaging service, they're just assuming that the data is secure. But there are all these kind of technical weaknesses, backdoors, ways that intelligence agencies can gain access and manipulate that data, isn't there? Yeah, so let me talk about that via an example. Um, people might remember that uh, the NHS experienced a bunch of, uh, of attacks on their, their um, digital system so that people couldn't access their medical records, ambulances were diverted, the NHS was really struggling. It was what was called the WannaCry worm. And the origins of that worm, I think, is really interesting and telling for our current debate because the origins of that that worm or the weakness that allowed people to hack into the NHS systems and hold people to ransom before they could access their medical records, it, it's a weakness in Microsoft's uh, user software. But what happened was that the NSA, the National Security Agency in, um, in the United States, it had identified this weakness some years ago and they elected not to tell Microsoft about that weakness so that Microsoft wouldn't patch it so that the NSA could continue to use it for their own purposes. And and the effect of that is that at some point that weakness or that vulnerability was, was stolen or lost by the NSA. It got into the hands of a bunch of hackers who then used it to essentially and, and to conduct a, a bunch of hacking. And one of the consequences was that the NHS was uh, brought to its knees, technologically speaking, for a period of time. So you can see how when security and intelligence agencies prioritise their own interests above digital security, then other then the people that suffer are everyday people who rely on encryption or software or network systems to go about their daily activities. If those vulnerabilities and weaknesses get into the wrong hands, um, if they originally started in the hands of the, of the intelligence and security agencies. The, the thing is that security, our digital security is critically important and it's up to all of us to protect it and understand how important it is to our daily lives and not allow government to justify weakening it uh, for their own purposes when in fact it doesn't make us any safer at all. Lizzie O'Shea, I've been struck in recent months by the veritable flood of new laws being proposed by the federal Liberal government, laws that would dramatically expand the capacity of state agencies to monitor in almost granular detail the lives of Australian citizens, everything from a nationally coordinated facial recognition surveillance database to the empowering of the Australian Signals Directorate to spy on domestic targets. 
And there are more and more, at least anecdotal accounts, of people having their phones and laptops confiscated, their data copied and transferred to God knows what government database when coming back through customs at Australian airports. Give us your own assessment of what you think this package of laws and powers is really all about. Well, I think we see a big shift of power away from citizens and even elected officials and towards intelligence agencies. And it becomes very difficult for uh, politicians, or they say it's difficult, to challenge the rhetoric around national security. So this is, I mean, a long-term trend that I'm sure your listeners are familiar with. But we're really seeing the end of two decades' worth of power shifts towards intelligence agencies who've made agencies who've made the most of the threat of terrorism to justify all sorts of powers being granted to them without any form of accountability. Uh, and so, you know, lawmakers really need to step up and instead of just assuming when uh, an intelligence agency asks for power that that's a legitimate request, they should be asking why that power is needed, why it's justified. Um, and we need to keep in proportion, I think, the threats that we're supposedly facing. We also are, need to ask, uh, uh, I think, our law enforcement intelligence agencies to actually do proper work rather than just assuming that all the barriers to them being able to do their job properly are technological, when I don't think that's true. I think they've got plenty of other tools at their disposal to make sure that they can do their jobs well and keep us safe. Uh, so I think that rhetoric sort of needs to be untangled and, and really dismantled, I would say, so we start having a different kind of understanding of what it means to be safe in society, but also what the role of police and intelligence agencies are in protecting public safety. Um, and that we need to stop stop allowing uh, the, the great progress that's come with digital technology and the development of the internet being transformed into just a, a power, um, a, a shift of power away from citizens and towards the surveillance state. And I think we, we all need to learn about these issues because they are complicated, of course, but it's our future. So while we, if we let this happen, it's very hard to undo and we should be trying to stop it at every possible opportunity. They are indeed complicated issues and it seems to me one of the problems with the debates around this kind of legislation is that people are intimidated by the technical detail and it all becomes very mystified in terms of the rhetoric and the way politicians and talking heads who justify such powers being granted to intelligence agencies do really mystify what's happening with, with all of that technical detail. So it's great that uh, your coalition is endeavouring to really inform citizens about what's really happening with these kinds of powers. How can uh, our listeners, if they're concerned about what you're, you're talking about, get involved in the campaign? What can they do to support the campaign to, to make sure that this legislation is stopped dead in its tracks? Sure. Well, it's really interesting, actually, that you talk about the Alliance, because the Alliance is a bunch of people who would normally not agree on lots and lots and lots of things. So it's um, it's industry associations, it's telecommunications industry representatives, and then on the other side of the ledger, you've got uh, Amnesty International Australia, the Human Rights Law Centre, and my organisation, Digital Rights Watch. And what I think is uh, unique about this is that... Um, We've come together because we're all so collectively alarmed about this. So even though we don't share views on lots of things as they exist in the digital sector, we actually do think that this is so critically important, um, and including industry, which is normally seen as being uh, as having problems with privacy. In fact, is raising its voice up and trying to work together with anyone that's available to them to work with to try and arrest this bit of legislation. And I think that's a testament testament to just how bad this bill is. And I think uh, it's good that we're doing it, but um, you know, I think we also obviously may have different views later on if the bill changes, but we're certainly um, pleased to work together on trying to resist it in 
its current form. What people might want to do if they're, um, if they're interested in this issue is uh, Digital Rights Watch, the organisation that I'm from, I'm on the board of, we uh, helped prepare a submission from civil society on this bill which uh, for the exposure draft, which you can read online. We've also got a bunch of really easy tools for... Um, sending a, a letter to your um, your member or also critically the Labor Party members on the, um, the committee that's considering the bill, which I think is of critical importance. So we're asking people to contact those members and um, you can find out on our website who they are, but they include like Mark Dreyfus and Penny Wong. Uh, and it's quite critical we talk to them because the Labor Party does have a strong tradition, unfortunately, of um, acquiescing to the coalition on matters of national security. And we think there's an opportunity here for Labor to say, actually, we aren't going to just do that here. We're going to stand up and we're going to say, no, we need more time to consider this. We need to give it proper scrutiny. We need to consider how we can improve it if we're going to do that. But at the moment, it's just an absolutely disastrous bill and, and, and no kind of, uh, there's no justification for it. And so we can't pass it. So we're really putting pressure on that committee and the Labor Party members of that committee should do so. Um, and so that's that's one way, very practical way that you can do that. And obviously you should sign up to our Digital Rights Watch's newsletters because we give you lots of ideas and tips and campaigns that you can participate in and learn about. One of the things Digital Rights Watch did do during the period of the exposure draft, so prior to it, the bill being tabled and put before a committee, is we got a bunch, everybody to um, go on our website and send in a, a submission to the department. And we got 14,000 people to do that, which I think is really fascinating because people, you know commentators love to think that everyday people don't care about their privacy but in fact you, you give them an ask and you give them an option for doing something they very much are interested in protecting their privacy and it's testament to that so I'm really encouraged by that and I think everyone should get involved in things like that as well.